Well, welcome everyone. Uh, thank you for coming uh, at the end of term. Uh, so we've only got two more days before all the students at least disappear. Uh, my name is Toby Dodge, and I am honoured to labour under the title uh, the Kuwait Chair and run the Kuwait Programme. Uh, the Kuwait Programme has been running, uh, it, it will run at LSE for a decade, and at its core is to encourage world beating expertise on Kuwait and the wider Gulf. Um, and as part of that, we decided to run an annual lecture. Uh, the good news is we've got one of the world's experts on Kuwait, and also afterwards we have a, a wine reception outside. So please join us uh, and, and pepper our speaker with any questions you don't get a chance to ask him before. If you could turn your mobile phones off so I don't have to shout at you in the middle of this. Now, Michael Herb is an associate professor in the Department of Political Science at Georgia State University. I think more importantly, um, uh, he's the world's expert on, he's a, he's a world's expert on uh, Gulf politics, but more specifically on Kuwait and the United Arab Emirates. Two books, The Wages of Oil, Parliament's Economic Development in Kuwait and the UAE, and the most recent one, uh, no, that's the most recent one, and published before that, Democracy, uh, All in the Family, Absolutism, Revolution and Democracy in Middle Eastern Monarchies. So I think we're in for a, a, a treat of, um, of rich discussion, um, and he's going to speak on the origins of the Kuwait National Assembly in comparative perspective. We'll speak for about 40, 45 minutes, and we'll have questions afterwards. Thank you. So please welcome, please join me in welcoming uh, Michael Herb. Okay, well, thank you uh, for inviting me, Toby. Uh, it's a real honor to come here and speak to an audience which clearly uh, cares about Kuwaiti politics. Uh, and so I'm looking forward to your questions and uh, talking with you afterwards. Um, today I'm going to uh, talk about the uh, emergence of the Kuwaiti National Assembly in historical perspective. So this will, uh, I will do this in three parts. First, I am going to talk a little bit about what it means to say that Kuwait has a strong national assembly. Kuwait does have a strong national assembly, but I'll talk a little bit about what that means. Second, I'm going to, and this is the heart of the, the, the talk, I'm going to talk about why it is that Kuwait has a stronger national assembly than the national, than the national level uh, institutions, representative institutions in the rest of the Gulf. And that will be a largely historical discussion. Uh, and then uh, at the end, I'll, I'll, I'll make a few comments on why, that, why it matters that Kuwait has a stronger national uh, parliament than the other Gulf uh, monarchies. The, and again, this is drawn from my recent book, The Wages of Oil, which was published uh, late last year. Uh, and that is a comparison of, of Kuwait and the United Arab Emirates. In that book, I both discuss why it is that Kuwait has a strong national assembly. That's this talk. And I talk about some of the consequences of that for politics in Kuwait, and then also in the UAE, where the middle class, the citizen middle class, doesn't have as much political voice. Um, so let me start with uh, the with the, uh, the the National Assembly and what it means to say that the uh, the National Assembly is uh, stronger than those in the rest of the Gulf. Um, and in particular, uh, I, I think that it has to do uh, 
It's not just that it's a strong National Assembly. It's a strong National Assembly for reasons. And the particular thing that I think is important is the way that the 1962 Constitution sets out the powers of the National Assembly. That's really what makes it different from uh, parliamentary institutions in the rest of the Gulf. Uh, and it's not just that the Kuwaiti National Assembly is elected. Often when we look at authoritarian regimes around the world, we focus on elections as being the mark, the thing that distinguishes authoritarian regimes from non-authoritarian regimes, whether there are good elections. Well, Kuwait has good elections. I mean, they're, they're reasonably free and fair. There are problems with the electoral system, of course, but they're reasonably free and fair. But Oman actually has elections also. And Oman's National Assembly, however, we wouldn't Oman's national level parliament, we wouldn't describe as having a lot of, as being a powerful uh, assembly. And that's because it, it is elected and it doesn't have much authority over the executive uh, power over the monarchy in Oman. Kuwait's National Assembly does. Specifically, Kuwait's National Assembly has the power to remove confidence in ministers. This is what, you know, this is a grilling or an interpolation which can then be followed by a vote of, of, of no confidence. Uh, and while no Kuwaiti minister has actually been voted out of office, a number of them have resigned uh, under threat of losing their positions uh, via vote of no confidence by the National Assembly. Um, so that's really the crucial uh, power that the National Assembly in Kuwait has. The, um, and it matters. It matters a lot. It, it, this systematically affects the way that Kuwaiti politics works. It gives the Kuwaiti citizen middle class uh, a voice in how the country is run, which has systematic consequences for uh, its economy, its politics, uh, and for much of what happens in Kuwait. So let me move on then to explaining why it is that Kuwait has this, this, this relatively powerful National Assembly. Um, and I'm going to consider five explanations that appear in the literature. Uh, the first one is the one set forward by Jill Crystal in her seminal 1990 book in which she compares Kuwait and Qatar. And she argues that it is, in fact, the merchant class uh, that distinguishes Kuwait from Qatar and thus, somewhat by implication, other Gulf countries. This is what explains for her, as she's laid out in, in, in some later works as well, why it is that Kuwait differs from the rest of the Gulf. Um, and this is a, 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 an argument that has been uh, well-received uh, uh, by those who study Gulf politics. So that's the first one, is the merchants. The second possible explanation is one set forward by Sean Yom. Uh, and he argues, uh, this is in the tradition of uh, scholars who look at authoritarian regimes and argue that we can understand how they work by looking at the points at which they were founded and the coalitions that were created when the authoritarian regimes were founded. So he argues that when the, the coalition underlying the uh, Kuwaiti regime was put in place, he says this is in the late 1930s, that because the British, and he compares with Bahrain, because the, the British uh, did not provide as much support to the Kuwaiti ruling family in the late, late 1930s as they did to the Bahraini ruling family, that the coalition underlying the Kuwaiti, uh, current Kuwaiti regime is wider and more inclusive than that in Bahrain. So that's the second explanation. A third explanation goes back to, and this is 
associate, I mean, I, in, in the, the best representative I could find for this argument, although many people make it in one form or another, is by Rosemary Said uh, Zahran, uh, who, who points out, again, comparing Bahrain and Kuwait, that the Bahraini ruling family came to power via conquest. The Kuwaiti ruling family came to power in what is seen today as almost a, sometimes called an election. But we could certainly say it was by, widely seen to have been by consensus. So the leading Najdi uh, uh, families in Kuwait selected the first Sabah to be their, their leader. Uh, uh, they selected him. El Sabah didn't depose themselves. Uh, the, uh, and so that could then help, to, help us to understand why it is that Kuwait today has a distinctive uh, political regime when compared to the rest of the Gulf, um, the rest of the Gulf monarchies. A fourth explanation is Iraq uh, and the Iraqi threat at a couple of crucial uh, periods in Kuwaiti history. Uh, and then a fifth one is Abdullah Salam who was the emir at the time when the Kuwaiti Constitution of 1962 was written. Uh, and he, was, uh, he had uh, liberal inclinations uh, at a crucial moment in Kuwaiti history. So those are the five explanations. Um, and what I do, and what I'm going to do tonight, and what I do in the book, is I actually go through, uh, look at Kuwaiti history, and see what evidence we can find in Kuwaiti history for these different explanations. Which ones seem to accord better with Kuwaiti history and the history of the rest of the Gulf, and which do not. For the uh, 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 political scientists out there, I'm using qualitative methods here in which I do, uh, I do small and case uh, comparisons, and I supplement that by looking in depth at the particular uh, historic, several historical periods in Gulf history uh, to look for evidence uh, for and against the, uh, the, the different explanations. So this is historical, but it's a structured look at history. I, am, I'm, 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 I, I look specifically for episodes uh, in history which help to throw light on, uh, help us to distinguish between these different explanations. And again, what we, you know, there's, pro there's probably some measure of truth to all five of these, but that isn't very satisfying for political scientists, at least. We want to find the one or two which explain most of it. Uh, and so I'm going to make an effort to do that and, 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 and see which ones don't have as much, uh, give us as much uh, explanatory power. Um, so I'm going to look at a, a few periods uh, in Kuwaiti history uh, and Gulf history, the founding of the, the ruling families, you know, going all the way back in history. I'll look a little bit at the early 20th century, uh, the late 1930s and the Majlis movements of 1938. Uh, the 1950s and 60s, when Kuwait gained its independence, and then a few comments on the 1990s. Uh, so let me, let me start with the, uh, the founding of the ruling families. It, it, part of what I'm doing here, is sort of an explicit choice, is, is that when I discussed, you know, when I talked about the existing explanations, they tended to rely on, on you know, comparisons between Kuwait and one other state. So Jill Crystal does Kuwait and Qatar, Others do uh, Kuwait and Bahrain. I broaden this out, and I look at all of the Gulf sheikhdoms because there's more cases there. We can learn more by broadening the, the, uh, the comparison. Uh, and I, so essentially, there's five core cases here. Kuwait, Bahrain, Qatar, but then also Abu Dhabi and Dubai, which were also small Gulf sheikhdoms. I also you know, make a few references back to Saudi Arabia, 
to Oman and to the smaller uh, uh, emirates in the, in the, what, that are now in the UAE. Um, so if we look at the founding of the ruling families, you know, there is this, this mythology in Kuwait, which has some basis in fact, that there was an election back in the middle of the 18th century when the al-Sabah were, were, came to power. And it's certainly true that, that when the al-Khalifa came to power in Bahrain, they conquered it uh, and, and uh, created a, a sort of a somewhat antagonistic relationship with the Baharna Shia Arab sort of cultivating class, which, which remains to this day. But what about the other Gulf Emirates or sheikhdoms then? Well, in, in, in Abu Dhabi, in Dubai, in Qatar... Yeah, the ruling families didn't come to power by conquest. Now, again, there isn't a lot of written history going on, hardly any written history going back to the origins of these ruling families. But nonetheless, it wasn't like Bahrain. It was more like Kuwait than it was like Bahrain. Uh, And so it doesn't really give us very much purchase on the problem here. It is, you know, there is in Kuwait this idea that there was an election. This is true. But was there, I mean, Abu Dhabi... That ruling family came to power too. Its origins are you know, long lost in history, but it wasn't through conquest in the way that, that Bahrain was. Um, so jumping forward to the next uh, historical period is that of in the early uh, 20th century. Uh, and we have a particularly good source on the Gulf in the early 20th century, which is Lorimer's, uh, John Lorimer's Gazetteer of the Persian Gulf, which provides a lot of really good information Across, I mean, he made an effort to, to, to go out and to, to survey the, uh, uh, the Gulf states uh, and provided a really invaluable look at them at a particular point of time uh, with comparable information. So if we look at that uh, and ask ourselves, well, what evidence is there at, in Lorimer for Kuwait being different from the other Gulf uh, sheikhdoms? How is it different then? Well, the most obvious question to ask is, how did his merchant class differ from the merchant classes of the other Gulf sheikhdoms? Again, Jill Crystal compares Qatar and Kuwait. And if we look at Lorimer, we see indeed that Qatar and Kuwait differ from each other. Qatar had not much of a merchant class at all. Kuwait did. But if we expand it a little bit, there were three sheikhdoms which had did a lot of tra- had large trading economies in the Gulf. These were Kuwait, Bahrain, and Dubai. Lorimer measures this by looking at the number of steamer visits uh, to the uh, to the different ports in the Gulf, and he comes to the conclusion. I mean, well, he, he counts them. Kuwait, Bahrain, and well, actually, it was in this order: Bahrain, Kuwait, and Dubai. Uh, Doha didn't wasn't a trading port. Uh, it was a pearling port. It was, uh, didn't have much of a trading economy. And the same was true of Abu Dhabi as well. Uh, the, uh, and so we have, uh, you know, in this period, there's three emirates or three sheikhdoms that have uh, uh, strong trading economies. And indeed, there are, those are the three with the largest merchant classes. So it doesn't, if we, if we look around and compare Kuwait with the rest of the Gulf, it doesn't stand out so much when compared to Bahrain or to uh, Dubai. It certainly stands out when we compare it to Abu Dhabi or to uh, Doha, which were, you know, all of these, all of these places were, were, were uh, pearling was important, but trade wasn't important 
uh, to nearly the same extent in Doha or in Abu Dhabi. These were mostly pearl imports. Um, the, uh, so, you know, again, Kuwait doesn't stand out here much. One way, however, that Kuwait's merchant class might, might stand out some uh, is in, in that if we, it was, it was largely Arab. And it can be compared, for example, to the merchant class in Muscat, which was almost entirely South Asian. And so Kuwait's merchant class was more of a natural leader of its society than the merchant class in Oman could have been. So what about Dubai and Bahrain? Bahrain, mostly Arab, but with some Indian uh, merchants. And Dubai was split. There were uh, important, to this day, actually, there are important merchant families in Dubai who are from the same tribal federation as the uh, al-Maktoum ruling family of Dubai, which is actually the same tribal federation that the ruling family of Abu Dhabi comes from. Uh, And these are the the merchant families that were behind uh, some of the agitation in Dubai in the late 1930s and then again in the 1950s and 60s, uh, or some of their members were behind that agitation. Uh, But there's also uh, a sizable Persian uh, uh, merchant class in Dubai as well. So perhaps this this gives us some explanation for how Kuwait was different from the other uh, other, uh, sheikhdoms in the the Gulf. But still, there were three that had large merchant classes in the inner Gulf, uh, plus Muscat. uh, uh, What did Lorimer have to say about the nature of rule in Kuwait? Uh, he, has, he does a little description of, of how the rulers rule in all of the different sheikh, excuse me, in the different sheikhdoms of Kuwait, he says, Mubarak's rule is personal and absolute. On the whole, it may be said that in the town he exacts absolute submission and in the country is content with general loyalty and obedience. So he emphasizes the degree to which Mubarak, this is Mubarak al-Kabir, the founder of uh, in some senses, the founder of modern Kuwait, uh, certainly the founder of the modern of the current uh, ruling lineage in Kuwait, uh, and uh, he's described as being absolutist, uh, and he was in many ways. He came to power, and after coming to power, uh, as uh, you know, the, the famous Kuwaiti historian Abdulaziz Rushaid points out, he came to power, uh, and he he changed the nature of the tax collection system in Kuwait, where before. Uh, the ruler had relied on donations from merchants. After he came to power, he put into, power, into place a customs house where he just collected the money. And this freedom from uh, 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 some of the dependence of his forebears on, 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 merchant, on, the, on the merchant class, and it allowed him to rule uh, in a way that was noticeably, or at least perceptibly in Lorimer's uh, uh, terms, uh, more absolutist than, uh, in, or at least more, more thoroughgoing in its absolutism than uh, the rulers of the other Gulf sheikhdoms. So again, if we're asking ourselves, you know, which of the explanations best explains why Kuwait is is uh, is uh, uh, more liberal today than it uh, than the other Gulf uh, countries or the other Gulf uh, monarchies? You know, if we ask about in, in Lorimer's time, the merchants certainly had been extraordinarily influential in Kuwaiti politics, uh, but weren't uh, at the turn of the century. So absolutely, you know, it, it doesn't suggest that the, well, it's quite clear that uh, merchants um, are very important in Kuwaiti society, but have not always been able to maintain constraints 
on the ruling family. Um, so jumping forward then to another episode, important episode in Kuwaiti history, which is in 1938. Uh, and this is the year, of course, of the Majlis movement, the movement in Kuwait, which also occurred in Dubai and in Bahrain, to set up a, uh, a legislative assembly. Uh, these movements were led by merchants. They occurred, as you'll note here, I mean, in three places in the Gulf. They occurred in the three sheikhdoms where there had been, where Lorimer found there to be steamer. These were steamer, visits by steamers in uh, the early 20th century. These were the places where there was a large merchant class. And in these three places, the merchants pressed for uh, some representation in the 1930s. The uh, uh, happened first in Kuwait. Well, in, in, in two of the, the sheikhdoms, these efforts were at least initially successful. So legislative councils were set up in Dubai and in Kuwait, but not in Bahrain. So in understanding what it, you know, it's actually the denouement of the, of the, of the, the legislative council, which is particularly uh, sort of interesting in terms of understanding the development of Kuwaiti history. But it's good to understand how they came to be in the first place. So there were essentially four actors. There was the ruler, there was the rest of the ruling family, there was the British, and then the merchants. So in Kuwait in 1938, what happened is that three of those four ganged up on the fourth, more or less. So the merchants, the British, and the members of the ruling family who weren't the ruler sort of came together or, or, I mean, it wasn't like they sat out and plotted it out, but they had a shared interest in constraining the power of the ruler. Uh, the, the, the role of the British political agent at the time, he wasn't very fond of the ruler. Uh, and with all these uh, opponents, the ruler had little choice but to concede and allow for a legislative assembly to be set up. And so it, 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 there, were, there were two elections to this legislative assembly. Uh, it, it, it lasted through 1938 into 1939. And then in 1939, it was shut down. So why was it shut down? It was shut down. Again, there were those, those, those three actors, the four actors there. The British decided that, that this wasn't such a great idea. It was going beyond what the British were willing to... to uh, to put up with. Uh, the uh, merchants, of course, were, this was a merchant assembly. Uh, they were behind it. But the rest of the ruling family, much of the ruling family switched sides. The motivation of the, of the ruling family, not, not counting the ruler, but the rest of the sheikhs, uh, in, in, uh, before 1938, they had been largely shut out of participation in rule in Kuwait. Uh, so if one looked at the offices and authority held by members of the ruling family, well, there was the ruler, of course. There was one sort of distant member of the family who was in charge of, of, of uh, had some responsibilities. And then there was a non-member of the al-Sabah who the, uh, the ruler uh, delegated a great deal of authority to. And this made the rest of the ruling family pretty unhappy. Uh, at the, in 1939, when the Legislative Assembly was shut down, 
the ruling family came together. They distri- the, the, ruling, the, the legislative assembly, again, led by the merchants, did a lot to sort of set up the foundations of the modern Kuwaiti state, opened up departments for this and that, education and so forth. Uh, the ruling family took over that emerging Kuwaiti state, divided up the offices amongst themselves, and shut down the national assembly, or excuse me, the legislative uh, assembly. So it ended when, you know, the ruler started being fairly isolated. He ended with uh, more British support than he had at the beginning, but also with his family. So this is when Kuwait created the first uh, family regime or dynastic monarchy in the Gulf was in 1939. When, and it was when the legislative assembly was shut down. Um, where did this leave Kuwait then? It left Kuwait with no legislative assembly uh, and with a uh, stronger absolutist regime than it had had beforehand. These, as I argued in my, my first book, these family monarchies or dynastic monarchies are really pretty resilient creations. Uh, and Kuwait had one from 1939 onwards. Uh, and it, in the, the, the ruling family, while there were occasional elections and so forth in Kuwait for this poster, for this uh, smaller assembly or that, uh, between 1939 and 1962, uh, by and large, Kuwait was ruled absolutely by the al-Sabah in this period. Uh, and it suggests that if this is the point at which Kuwait, uh, the Kuwaiti regime was founded, it wasn't really, I mean, the, 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 the coalition underlying this regime wasn't broad. Only, it was only broad in the sense that it was a broad coalition of the family of the ruling family, that at least in terms of, of the distribution of power uh, in the government, largely excluded other members of, of Kuwaiti society. So again, you know, again, the, 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 the merchants in this, in, you know, from 1939 onwards, uh, there's certainly a memory of merchant predominance going back to the 19th century, and there's the memory of the legislative assembly of 1938-39, but there wasn't a lot of actual authority in political terms via institutions held by the ruling family, by the merchant class in Kuwait. Um, just as a, as a point of comparison in Dubai, uh, the, the, the Dubai uh, Legislative uh, uh, Council was also shut down uh, by the ruler. That didn't really result in the uh, uh, dynastic monarchy in Dubai immediately. It was more just the ruler. Uh, moving against the, 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 uh, the assembly. Um, let's jump forward then to the next period in history uh, and look at the uh, uh, Kuwaiti independence, uh, which followed you know, in, in 1961. Uh, you know, as, I, as I pointed out, the key thing that makes Kuwait, uh, it makes the Kuwaiti National Assembly more, have more authority than uh, national-level representative, representative institutions in the rest of the Gulf are provisions of the 1962 Constitution, which give the National Assembly the right to remove confidence in ministers. So 1962 is a pretty important period in understanding why the Kuwaiti National Assembly has a lot of power. And of course, what happens in you know, Kuwait uh, becomes independent uh, in... Uh, 
1961. Uh, within a week, uh, the Iraqis declare, the Iraqi ruler uh, declares uh, that Kuwait is part of Iraq uh, on little historical, well, very little basis, but he declared it. Um, the, uh, shortly thereafter, uh, the emir sends out a delegation of, made up largely of merchants to go around to Arab capitals uh, to try to drum up support for uh, Kuwait. The, uh, the, the Iraqi uh, declaration was important, not just because Iraq is a large and threatening neighbor, but Iraq also, uh, because of the Iraqi declaration, the Soviet Union uh, did not allow Kuwait to become a member of the United Nations. <laughs> Uh, and blocked Kuwait's membership in the United Nations all the way up until 1963 when the regime changed in Iraq. And this mattered a lot. Kuwait wasn't the most obvious candidate for sovereign statehood in 1961, at least looking at it from the outside. It was small. Kuwait still is kind of small. It was rich. Uh, People who weren't very sympathetic to Kuwait could argue that it was a creation of the British in order to maintain control over the oil wealth through a family. And it wasn't really a state. It was just a collection of oil wells uh, and a family that the British put there. I'm not, that's not true. The, the, the Al-Sabah were there long before the British showed up. And, 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 and this view uh, uh, overlooks the fact that there were lots of Kuwaitis who uh, felt themselves to be Kuwaiti and wanted to have a, an independent Kuwaiti state. But this, was, but this gets at exactly the issue. What the ruling family needed to show in this context was, in fact, that that was true. And how does it show that it has support from an actual Kuwaiti citizenry? Well, the obvious way to do this was to give them some institutional voice. Uh, and, and, so, and, and the logic of this, uh, when this, you know, I mentioned this delegation which went out to Arab capitals. Amongst others, they visited Nasser. Um, one of the things they said when they came back uh, was to recommend that there be a broadening of political participation in Kuwait. And they wrote that, to quote, by creating the possibility for this participation by Kuwaitis in governance, we take away a weapon that is often used against us and which no doubt will be exploited more broadly if we do not take the initiative to create an appropriate system. Uh, So in other words... What they did is they related uh, the idea of broader political participation back to Kuwaiti national survival. Uh, and, and, and this is a, an argument which many made at the time. It's, a, it's an argument that makes sense. I mean, it does... Kuwait can't defend itself against Iraq. Kuwait is a small country. It's a rich country. Uh, it needs help from abroad. Uh, to get that help, it helped it, it, the ruling family does better to show that it has the support of Kuwaitis. Kuwaitis are willing to show that support, but the way, one way that they can do it is via uh, representative institutions, uh, which, uh, such as the National Assembly. Uh, and certainly, so in other words, I'm, I'm arguing here that Iraq is important in explaining why Kuwait has the 1962 constitution. And certainly, the, 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 the specific historical train of events uh, the 1962 Constitution is really closely related to the Iraqi threat in 1961. So the delegation goes out. By the end of the year, 
Uh, there were elections to the Constitutional Convention. The, con the, the Constitution was written in 1962. The first elections, or the first, much of the Saluma or National Assembly was held in 1963. Uh, and in 1963, the regime in, in, in Iraq was overthrown. Uh, Iraq backed off of its threat. Uh, Kuwait was admitted to the United Nations. Uh, and uh, the, the crisis passed for the moment. Uh, but nonetheless, what, what was left after the crisis was the 1962 Constitution. Now, I also think that there is another, you know, I mentioned the role of Abdullah Salam. And I think Abdullah Salam was important here as well. I, I, I read through the, uh, the minutes of the uh, writing of the, uh, the 19... Uh, 62 Constitution. It's quite clear that in that specific provision giving the right of a majority of the elected members of the National Assembly the right to remove confidence in ministers, that uh, Abdullah Salam's influence was cited by members of both the committee that wrote the Constitution and the Constitutional Convention as a whole, cited as important in that. So I think that, that you know, without Abdullah Salam, it is possible, it, very likely there would have been a Constitution and a National Assembly not crystal clear that it would have had the amount of power that it does. Um, so I think Abdullah Salam matters as well. Um, the, uh, it also matters that Kuwaiti pu Kuwaitis themselves pushed for a national assembly. I don't want to minimize the role of Kuwaitis. Uh, and the Kuwaitis have made real sacrifices and showed real courage in demanding in the 1950s uh, greater political participation and afterwards as well. In a comparative perspective, People in Dubai did this as well, and in Bahrain, and even in Qatar. Uh, so it is, I mean, it's a crucial factor, but it isn't one that, but, but there, were, there were courageous Qataris and citizens of Dubai and elsewhere who, who also wanted more representation in the 1950s and 1960s. Um, so jumping forward a little bit then in history to, uh, you can tell where this is going. In, if it, the, so Abdullah Salam dies, and Kuwait is admitted into the United Nations. Actually, that's in reverse order. But uh, so from 1965 onwards, uh, the ruling family in Kuwait didn't display a, a, always a, a, a real commitment to the 1965 con 1962 Constitution. Uh, there were periods of, of relative opening and closing in Kuwaiti politics. Uh, that uh, ended with uh, the suspension of the, the, the National Assembly in 1986 uh, and the elections to the Majlis al-Watani, or the National, well, National Council, in 1990, which had none of the, the, the core powers of the National Assembly under the 1962 Constitution. And, of course, what brought that to an end was Iraq again. And after, 1960, after the uh, liberation in 1991, the 1962 Constitution was restored and has been in force ever since in Kuwait. I think if one is to look at, I, I do think, so the ruling family had to bring it back. I do think that by today there has emerged something of a Kuwaiti national culture around the idea of having a, a more political participation in a national assembly. Uh, so that the, the efforts that the ruling family made to sort of try to undermine and, and go back on and undo the gains of the 1962 Constitution, uh, haven't, 
occurred in the current period. There's been this is important. There's been a lot of there's there's there's, there's been crackdowns in Kuwait recently with the withdrawal of citizenship, with people being jailed for criticizing the emir and other things, uh, with the unilateral, the unilateral change of the electoral system. But all of and, and some of that might plausibly be argued to be against the constitution, but the emir and the family has not done anything like what happened in 1986, when the constitution was effectively suspended, well, when the, the National Assembly was dismissed and a new assembly was put in its place with none of the powers. The core powers of the Kuwaiti National Assembly are still there. Uh, elections are still held. There is, of course, a boycott. But the basic structure of the 1962 Constitution is very much in place. And I think that has to do a lot with... So I don't, I don't think it's so much that I mean, the, the going back to the 19th century and the role of the merchants does, does play into this notion that Kuwait is different from the rest of the Gulf. And I think what really, I think it's the experience of Kuwait since 1962, having a national assembly and having that become part of Kuwaiti's idea of who they are and having, making it so that it's hard for the uh, authoritarian members of the ruling family, whoever they may be, to go back on the, the, the 1962 constitution is just is, is crucial. Um, so let me so I mean to, to, to I'll make a couple of comments about the rest of the the Gulf here and then I will wrap up uh, and and keep it to around 45 minutes or so. But let me uh, 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 return to my five explanations here. I think that I mean. I, I, I think what distinguishes Kuwait is probably more the Iraq, the threat from Iraq than it is the merchant class or the founding of the family or the coalition that established the regime. I think that a couple of crucial episodes in Kuwaiti history, in 1961 and through 1963, and then 1990 and 91, the Iraq threat really mattered and really had a consequence for uh, the way that Kuwait developed politically, precisely because the ruling family needed to display support from Kuwaitis, which Kuwaitis were happy to, to, to show. So they needed to show that Kuwaitis supported the ruling family. And the way to show that support was through uh, the, uh, an elected assembly. Um, and of course, in Jeddah in 1990, there was an explicit trade. Right? The, the opposition promised to support the ruling family if the ruling family promised to bring back the 1962 <laughs> constitution. There wasn't any, I mean, it was explicit. Uh, and that's what the ruling family uh, did in the early, you know, after liberation. Um, so what are then the, the uh, a, a few conclusions of this for Kuwait? Um, I, uh, I think it's, uh, you know, the, 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 the uh, important I think that the structure does remain in place uh, in Kuwait. Uh, recent uh, events have not uh, undermined the 1962 constitution, and that's really crucial. Uh, I will say that a lot of my political science colleagues looking at Kuwait over the last couple of years have been scratching their heads and our heads about why it is that the ruling family hasn't just given up on the whole thing and gone to the, to the Abu Dhabi or Qatari model. And they haven't, and that's crucial. Uh, and at this point, it doesn't look like they will. Uh, 
And so I think that leaves a framework in place for Kuwaiti citizens, if they want to go vote, to actually impose some constraints on their rulers. In the long run, I think it's enough. I think within the, 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 the framework of the current Kuwaiti constitution, Kuwait can move a lot farther, a lot closer than it is today to full parliamentary democracy. Uh, what that requires is that first Kuwaitis participate in the elections and that there is a solid majority in the, uh, the National Assembly which can convince Kuwaiti citizens that uh, more progress toward democracy would be good for them. And in recent years, it's not, I'm not sure the opposition has made that argument. I think the opposition would admit this themselves. I don't think they've made that argument all that well. Uh, the, uh, which is not to say that, that uh, the, the government has, uh, in recent years, made all that great a case for itself either. So, and that goes to some of the, the deeper problems about the way that, uh, with, with, with the way the Kuwait is ruled. Um, in touching on those, then, the conclusions for the, you know, some, some lessons of this for the rest of the Gulf. Well, first, it's not like there's only one way to get uh, a parliament with some authority in, in, in uh, a monarchy in the Gulf. Uh, the UAE and Oman and so forth don't have their own, you know, don't, don't need to be next to a rock. I think what they do need, however, is some pressure from some source. The ruling families aren't going to give up uh, authority to a, a national assembly and, and write constitutions which give real authority to elected parliaments without a good reason to do so. And that would be something that it would be pressure from, I think, in the, especially from below. Uh, one could imagine it happening in, uh, you know, there's going to be a succession in Oman. And unlike in the succession in Saudi Arabia, the Omani succession is much less clear. And whoever winds up being the next uh, ruler of Oman may have good reasons to want to demonstrate uh, a willingness to listen to uh, uh, Omani citizens. The way to do that is, I think, arguably by following the Kuwaiti model. Uh, by they, there's elections in Oman today. By uh, giving the elected national legislature in Oman some real authority, one of the places to start would be uh, the right to remove confidence in ministers. Uh, legislative authority would be good as well, but especially you know, the, the right to remove confidence in ministers. Um, and I think that ought to be the, the standard by which uh, constitutional reform, if it ever occurs in the rest of the Gulf, ought to be measured. Um, and then a final comment is, of course, that the other thing that would make the Kuwaiti model uh, more attractive in the rest of the Gulf would be better results in Kuwait. And there are, uh, as I'm sure, well, uh, those who have, us who spend time looking at Kuwaiti politics, there are some deep problems in the way that Kuwait has been ruled uh, in, in, in past years. Many of those uh, are a product of uh, the structure of Kuwaiti politics, where you have a national assembly which uh, isn't responsible for appointing the government, but it does have a negative power of making it very difficult for the government to rule. Uh, and some sort of resolution to that, or some, some greater signs of, of, of success, that would make Kuwait a more compelling model for the rest of the Gulf than it is today 
uh, would, I think, uh, hasten perhaps the adoption of, of, of the Kuwaiti model uh, in the rest of the Gulf. So with that, I hope I've, I've uh, said enough things that I have uh, uh, that might spur a few questions. Um, so how should I should I just take questions or oh, do you want to sit down or uh, it depends how strong your legs are. <laughs> <laughs> that was great. Thank you. Uh, thank you very I'll, much. I'll be happy to sit.